0: But we're continuing our, our Summer Bible Jam series this week, our, our efforts to meditate on, on God's Word. And we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you could go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I want us to, to begin by considering a few things about our own lives. Right, what in life for you right now feels disappointing? What feels like, you might say, that this is not really what I expected? What seems like you've arrived at a place that's confusing? You know, Paul David Tripp, he he compares it to the experience of an older woman who has dementia, who wanders off from her family. Maybe this is something that's happened to you with with your own family members before, and and, and she forgets where she's at. And maybe she's at a park or a place in town that she's visited dozens of times. But now all of a sudden it feels unfamiliar. And so she's, she's lost even in, in these places of life that she's been before. It feels foreign. And maybe you feel like you've somehow arrived at a location that feels foreign. Now, you, you were married for years. But now you're divorced. Or you're single and, and you always assumed that you would have been married at this point in your life. Or maybe your, your children and grandchildren have moved away and your your family is spread across the map and, and this isn't quite how you imagined you would spend the later years for you. Or perhaps the changes in the culture and the value systems that have been rapidly shifting have made you feel more and more out of place, you know, as, as pastors... We're constantly talking about the fact that how how both the the church world and the surrounding culture, they just feel so different. On a podcast, Albert Moeller said this. He said, in about 25 years' time, we've seen the most concentrated, high-velocity social change that human beings have ever experienced. Pastor, you're not wrong when you think that the whole world has changed. It has. And that affects us. But you know, maybe it's not that the circumstances have, have suddenly shifted on you, but, but life just feels strangely unrewarding. You used to think of it in terms of opportunities, but now it's just all obstacles and complications. Your career path seems underdeveloped. You're not drawing a lot of inspiration from, from what you do. Relationships feel thin and hollow. You wonder if you have any real friends. You're not happy with where you live, but relocating doesn't really feel like it's a possibility right now. You're not sure what that would do for you anyway. And maybe it's like time is both fleeing past you fast and moving way too slow. Why does everything feel so foreign? Well, like that woman with... Dementia, part of our, our disorientation, it often comes from what you might call location amnesia. We've forgotten the kind of world that we live in. We need to remember our location, and the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us do that. You know, each Sunday we're, we're introducing to you a different genre of scripture to meditate out of, and this morning we're going to be talking about the wisdom literature in scripture. And the Bible is, is one book that's made up of many different books, and they're written in different ways, and, and, and we need them. And sometimes we need the, the, just the clear doctrinal statements and the flow of argument that you find in the epistles. And sometimes we just need to sit down and be told a story. And believe it or not, sometimes we need Poetry. And like the Psalms, wisdom literature typically comes in, in the form of poetry. That's why it's laid out in, in stanzas in your Bible like that. And, and Hebrew poetry, it doesn't rely on things like rhyme and, and meter, it, it, it uses things like vivid language and word pictures and imagery that require reflection. There are terse descriptions that leave you wanting more and needing to think over what it says. There are parallel lines that cause you to consider what's what's the relationship between these two things. And and that's the stuff of meditation. And, And certain poems are wisdom poems. Wisdom is about applying divine principles to life experience. And, and biblical wisdom trains us to see all of life in light of the fear of the Lord. But different books do this in different ways. You know, you know the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, they're, they're wisdom books, but, but so are books like Job. And Ecclesiastes. And as you read them, they, they feel very differently. I don't know if you've noticed that before. You know, I just spent several months going through the book of Proverbs with the youth and, and Proverbs. It's just got a lot of helpful topics uh, that address where teens uh, live today. But Proverbs, it, what it does, is it begins with a principle and then it takes it into our experience. But Ecclesiastes begins with surveying human experience and then drawing from that an understanding of life. And that's why the phrase "and I saw" appears so often in this book. And as you, as you read wisdom literature, you'll notice that it, it tends to use stark categories it tends to deal with what you might call the extremes of life. And sometimes it, 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 it says things that are just stated strongly and without qualification in a way that's designed to get your attention. The Christian novelist Flannery O'Connor, when, when she was asked why her stories contain so many uh, violent and, and startling realities in them, she said, you know, uh, to, to the heart of hearing I shout... And and to the almost blind, I draw large and startling figures. And wisdom literature highlights two stark aspects of reality. There's creation and there's the fall. This is a world that was created by God. And this is a world that is now fallen. And those two facts influence everything. And both of them are necessary when it comes to understanding our location. There's a harmony and in order to the world that God has designed. It operates according to divinely embedded principles. But there is also chaos and a curse at work. And Proverbs helps us see a world where God shines through everything. But wisdom books like Job and Ecclesiastes... Help us see a world where, where God often seems hidden. A world where humanity has been kicked out of the garden and driven into the wilderness. And maybe that's why our Wild Wild West VBS set helps us out this morning. You know, it puts you near a cacti and all, all this, because it, it, a lot of life, we live in a, a wilderness setting. And these books, they call for our patience. They don't fit into our our typical microwave approach to our devotions. They they, they call for meditation. Douglas Wilson says this. He says, The great Hebrew philosopher who wrote this book called Ecclesiastes calls us to joy, but to a joy which thinks, a joy which does not shrink back from the hard questions. He calls us to meditation. Meditation. We must not rush headlong to pious and edifying conclusions before letting the force of Solomon's observations and argument work into our souls. We must not hasten to heal this particular wound lightly. The meaninglessness of all things, as Solomon presents it, must work down into our bones." We should let the word do its work before we hasten to make Ecclesiastes a grab bag of inspirational quotes. But sometimes, you know, honestly, in in the Christian world, that's what we want. We want a quick insight that doesn't take a lot of effort that we can post with this nice image on Instagram somewhere and, and draw inspiration from it. But that's not how the Bible has come packaged to us. And that's not how God has designed his word to take root in our hearts. Here's what I hope that the Holy Spirit helps us to do this morning. I want us to take time to see life through Ecclesiastes. And that means taking a close look at what's in this text and considering how it's communicated and and taking that into our settings today. And, and sometimes what you have to do is zoom out a little bit before you zoom in. So we're going to do a little bit of a, a tour of the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes. But then I want us to give us an opportunity to savor these truths in light of our own lives and then lead us to encounter what we need to receive from God. And, and somehow we're going to do all of that. And maybe I'm just striving after the wind, but God, God's going to help us. With this. All right, so first, seeing life through Ecclesiastes. Let's read together. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And here he introduces the theme of the book. Now, that is not the main point of the book, but it is the theme of the book. It's not where he wants us to land, but it is where he wants us to begin. He wants us to recognize this dimension of human experience. Everything is vanity. And and the Hebrew word that he uses there, it's the word Havel. And it it appears five times in verse 2 and it shows up all throughout this book. And and, and the basic meaning of that word, it has to do with a, a breath or a vapor or a mist. It's the same sort of concept that the... The book of James picks up on later on when it says that your life is just a vapor. It's just like when you go out on a cold day and you breathe out your hot air and you see it visible for a moment and then it disappears and is gone before you could even time it. But as you follow this word through the book, and, and this is a word that, that's worth meditating on, and you just notice the different ways that he uses this. It, it, it means things like vain. Meaningless, inscrutable, empty, hollow, weightless, fleeting, futile, frustrating, absurd, unfulfilling, unrewarding, unsatisfying, unproductive, monotonous, insignificant." It sounds like the preacher would agree with Macbeth that life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. Now, that might bring us to tears, but before you rush to try to resolve that, let let him apply a little pressure on this wound for us. Let him show us that futility touches everything because the whole storyline of the Bible tells us this. Right, and then he opens the book with, with a, a, another poem, what you might call a parade of vanity. He says in verse 3, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And, and that's a rhetorical question. And, and rhetorical questions, they come with the answer supplied. It's there free of charge. I tell the youth, when your mom asks you, do I look stupid? You're not supposed to answer that question, right? She's not looking for an answer there. But, but it's useful when you, when you come across a rhetorical question in the Bible, just, just take it and, and turn it into a statement. Hey, what is he saying there? He's saying the implication is there is no gain from all our efforts. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. It's like the earth is indifferent to us. Generations come and go, but they, they don't add any real value or change. Then he describes the repetitiveness of the world around us. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and and hastens or you can render that it, it returns panting to the place where it rises it, it's like the the sun just races around the track exhausted it just runs the same course over and over and over again but nothing really advances number 6 the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Right, you, you know those uh, little gimmick gifts that they used to sell where it was like a, a, a self filling bucket and it is connected to a little faucet that looked like it was just suspended in mid-air and it just was constantly running through its cycle and refilling itself. That's kind of how he pictures all the rivers. They just got water that's flowing into the streams, but it never fills up. It's just pointless activity here. Verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it, The eye is not satisfied with seeing, he's going to come back to that, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. And I've heard it said that the person who thinks that he's discovered something new is actually being something old. You know, every generation comes around and they think they've corrected the problems of the previous generation. They think they've progressed beyond certain issues and, and needs. But they're just, they're just the same old cliche. You know, whether you're a flower child of the 60s or a Gen Xer of the 80s or a millennial in the, in the 2000s, it's the same old old, new stuff that you think you've arrived at. Dwayne Garrett says, a poetic picture of the structure of the world. This text depicts, depicts the human environment as a monotonous prison. We're always striving and never arriving and every day you do it again. And so much of life is like this. Right? Your, your car breaks down again. Once again, your homeowner's insurance goes up. That's the only direction it ever knows how to head in, right? You're doing the exact same air conditioning repair that you did six months ago. It, it seems like needs and emergencies outrun you. It's just restless futility. And, and this affects more important things as well. There's so much that we're powerless to change. There are certain things that it feels like no matter how much energy and effort that you put into it, you just end up right where you began. It doesn't get resolved. It doesn't move forward. It just returns as, as an agenda item in a meeting or something that's plaguing your mind when you're in your bed at night. You, you thought you had moved past that misunderstanding with that person, but they're showing signs that they're offended again. You've spent a year working on a relationship and it, it looked like you were making progress. It, it looked like things were going to be different. We weren't going to stay in the same ruts where we always were but now it's as if none of that took place. You have the same conversation and argument dozens of times. It's just it's like it's pre-scripted for you you read your lines and they read theirs and back and forth you go. So much that we deal with feels oppressively stupid. Now we know and this author knows that that is not the whole story. Right? God has a purpose in this. He's in the rivers. He's in the wind. Right? He, he is in everything that he has made. But, but this is how life under the sun, from our vantage point, so often confronts us. And right here, God is in the horizon, but he's not in center view. But, but consider this, right? If we were to serve up Ecclesiastes and, and try to sell it today in the, in the world of Christian publishing, <laughs> would this book get printed? Would, would this become a bestseller? You know, you know, so much that's, that's popular today, it sounds like a, a motivational speech, that life's full of t- potential. And and God's got big plans for you and he's here to help you overcome all the obstacles that you face. You just keep pressing on, man. You don't listen to those voices that are getting you down and and it's like if you can just figure out the right kind of principles to live by, principles of of self-actualization and and people skills, then you're going to be successful and the sky's the limit, And the American culture that we live in, it trains us to have very large expectations for life and what it will bring to us. But you live in a world that is under a curse. There are certain things that no matter how much you manipulate them and try to change them and try to bring your force of personality to bear on them, they remain broken. So here's my question for you. Do you live, do you face life with expectations that are sufficiently informed by that fact? Because this author didn't, right? And he chronicles what you might call an experiment in, in futility. He, he describes it as chasing the wind. And that's a phrase. I mean, could you imagine somebody doing that? That's what you're supposed to do with poetry, right? Put the picture in your mind. It's like you, you come across somebody and, and their arms are flailing in the air all over the place and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's wrong? Does this person need medical attention? And you say, hey, buddy, what's going on here? And he says, you know what? I'm catching some air here. I'm, I'm after it. I, any moment now, I'm, I'm going get to get it here. And you just kind of send him on and say, all right, you go do that. But the, but the thought is, it, it's something that, you'll never catch up to it, no matter how much you try. But even if you could, you wouldn't have anything in your hands. All right, I'd, I'd like to think of maybe a, a cat with a laser pointer. Maybe like just getting a cat's head like that and you're just shining that all over the place and it's jumping about frenzied, but, but it's, it's, it's never able to capture what it's after. And his point is that there, there's nothing ultimately fulfilling and what you can find under the sun. Douglas Wilson says, in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, we see that Solomon's experience shows that satisfaction cannot come from anything within the power or competence of man. He shows us what all of our perceived autonomy and ingenuity can produce and he concludes it's not very much, if anything at all. But that didn't stop him from trying. Right. First he tested out knowledge. Look in verse 16 of chapter one. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases Sorrow. And we have access to a lot of knowledge today, right? We're in the age of Wikipedia. There's just so much that you don't have to like sit still for very long to have to figure out. There's an opportunity to pull out some device somewhere, have the universe at your fingertips. Any question, just ask Siri. She's going to do some sort of effort to supply an answer for you. You know, I've I've heard it put like this. We access, you know, in, in... In one edition of the New York Times, there is more information than somebody living 200 years ago would have come across in their entire lifetime. What makes us think we can handle that? Have we somehow really developed beyond the people that were living 200 years ago that allows us to process that? We try. Our devices, you know, there's a lot of computing power there. There's, there's more uh, power in your pocket than what was required to launch the first space shuttle. And I was listening to this story that, that's saying, you know, they're, they're dealing with storage limitations for, for data. And, and, and the next thing that's being explored is actually using DNA. Using DNA instead of silicone as a way of putting information in that because it's just exponentially greater in its ability to hold data. But is that what we need? More information? I mean, it's, 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 it's an exciting opportunity, but part of me just freaks out when I hear that, right? With much knowledge comes much sorrow. No matter how many times you pull out the news feed and swipe down on your social media app, it, it doesn't bring a sense of satisfaction and and fullness, and in fact, he says there's a, there's an aspect to knowledge. And again, this isn't the whole story. We're not throwing away knowledge here, but it's part of it. It's part of it that we need to accommodate. It brings sadness, and as you look throughout history, you know, some of the smartest people who ever lived were also the most depressed. The more they knew, the less they could wrap their minds around it. 70 years ago, the the poet W.H. Oden, he described the, the time he lived in as the age of anxiety. And his point was that to be modern is to be, Anxious And the anxiety he described, it was what was faced by the cultural elites, by the intellectuals who were always on the cutting edge. They were interacting with ideas and problems and social concerns. And so they were staring at the future and the needs that were facing humanity. And he says that just multiplies our anxieties. But today, it's like we're all pretend intellectuals. Right, we are expected to have an opinion on everything, no matter what it is, no matter if you just found out that that even exists as a category five minutes ago, you're supposed to form an opinion on that and, and post that somewhere for somebody else to then critique and, and pull apart. I mean, just the opportunities that we have that, that come streaming into our lives, it's, it's, it's astounding. And in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it, it's written by this you know, wealthy sage, by Solomon in his later years. And it has almost a, a first world problems feel to it. Uh, because you, you have to have a certain amount of wealth and, and education to consider some of the things that he takes up in this book. A lot, a lot of the lower class they were just trying to survive, right? They're just trying to make sure, we, do we have food tonight? But to reflect on, on these sort of things. Uh, but our, our position of technology and development and, and everything is automated for us. And we have a microwave and we have all these things. That, that just created more opportunity for us to freak out. We're no better off. That more news of tragedy that comes into our awareness. More opportunities to pull up somebody else's profile and compare your life with theirs. and, And remember once again how it hasn't delivered for you. So everything from North Korea to Donald Trump to the Pinterest board of your friend who throws better birthday parties than you. It's just anxiety abounds. And the more we know about humanity, the less we understand. He says, I I set about to know madness and folly. In other words, he he wants to understand why do people do the things that they do? Why do they return to foolish things? And why do they destroy their lives with things that feel so obviously dumb? And maybe, maybe you have... Friends and family members that have been locked in these destructive patterns for years. And to you, you stare at it and it seems so simple. Stop doing that, right? Stop going to that thing, that Person, that drug, whatever it is, why do you return again and again and throw so many opportunities away? Why is so much wasted? And no matter how many times you encounter those needs and those problems, the less they explain, it just brings sorrow. What about pleasure? Look at chapter 2. Verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. So he's not being excessive with this. He doesn't say I just became a drunkard and drank away all my problems. He says, My heart's still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses. And planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. And, and so he, he, he takes a principled approach to pleasure. It's not so much that, that he just decides I'm going to indulge in, in sin. He pursues things like laughter and entertainment and a good drink. He became a, a foodie and he tried out all the latest hipster restaurants He did renovations on his home and, and, and built up his landscaping and yet futility characterized this as well. It didn't provide any ultimate gain. Verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Even wisdom seems unrewarding. Verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also? Why then have I been so very wise? What's the point? I said in my heart that this is also vanity. What if you had some sort of clean system like like Job's friends had where people got what they deserved and and the righteous prospered and and, and God honored them for what they had done and how they had served and sacrificed in their lives and and that led to health and success but the, the wicked They ended up suffering and so if you just live by the right principles and the right moral code, then you'll end up doing well. And this, says the preacher, is chasing the wind. We know there's just too much counter evidence to this. Your spouse abandoned you and from what you can tell seems to be just loving life these days and left you to pick up the pieces and care for the kids and pay the legal fees it just looks like madness or that that person who gamed the system and manipulated things they got the promotion and the trajectory of their life has just been success ever since and you were left behind you were honest you did the right thing and that seems like that's, that's been no better for me. So what's the point in being wise? What, what's the benefit? Well, he says there's limited value under the sun. Right here and now. The, the, the wise person has his eyes in the head. The fool walks in darkness. You know, somebody's put it like, you know... It's better to, to go over a cliff with your eyes open than with your eyes shut. But you're going to end up in the, in the same destination one way or the other. And that's what he sees right here. And then, and then there's work. And sometimes you give yourself to the daily grind and it doesn't make any lasting difference. In verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And you know what? That's exactly how it played out in Solomon's life. Right? You, you never had in the, in the entire history of Israel the kind of prosperity, and unity and productivity like you had during the reign of Solomon. The nation was wealthy. Everything was in order. Construction of the temple was taking place and gold was common as grain they described. They just celebrate all that was done through the wisdom that God had provided to this man and his labors. And his son Rehoboam comes along and ends up losing the majority of the kingdom to somebody else. And Solomon, man, everything you built and everything you worked for in life is now in pieces. What about seeing what's behind the motives for why we work? Unmasking that. You know, Ecclesiastes Shows us the man behind the curtain in all these categories. And he's just not very impressive. Look, uh, got this in your notes. Chapter 4, verse 4. He says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity. A striving after wind. And then chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. Have you noticed how how people's busyness and drivenness to productivity is so often a result of their own envy and appetites? Have you noticed that in yourself, right? There's a dimension of that inside of all, all of us, right? Responsibility and doing a good job and and, and putting in long hours and, and dedicating yourself to these things. It, it 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 looks good. It looks looks like you're just there to help people and get the job done, but there's this self-serving aspect to it. Is that why you exhaust yourself at work? Is that why you, you're always checking on things late into the night? Because you're trying to drink from it some sense of significance and it leaves you thirsty. As you read through the rest of the book and I'll put these in your notes, you can check them out later or if you're like, he just picks up a, a variety of topics, right? Politics and, and government, we know that's vanity, right? Uh, money, friendship and loneliness, social justice, empty religion, the recognition and approval of people, Education and one after another he takes a sip from it and says, Not much arrives in this life. And and, and to me it's striking how tame some of these categories are. He, he doesn't say, I tried drugs and prostitutes. Right? It's, it's things like I pursued study and gardening and fair trade coffee. <laughs> but all of these things are empty. As well. And, and, and as Christians, when, when we sing, Nothing in this world satisfies, we often think about things like drunkenness or pornography or maybe fame and fortune. That's what comes to mind. But what about things like marriage and family or retirement, home ownership? What about your experience in a church community? Right? Maybe you, you're at a point in your time in this church it's, it's gone from the honeymoon phase to something that feels more like midlife and, and you feel a little disconnected from the people and the ministry here. Right? It doesn't quite feel like home and wholeness. Is something wrong with that? Maybe. But where are your expectations? You do realize that Lakeview Christian Center is touched by futility as well. It's not designed apart from God and apart from his work and his care in our lives to ultimately fulfill us. And why is life like this? Well, we find out from his word that God made it this way. God poked holes in all of the containers of life so that they don't hold what we think they do. And he's gonna tell us why in a moment. But but we should note this, that his point is, that there is not that there's no joy in these things or that you know we should avoid them if we're really spiritual. We're not gonna to try to have any sort of a good time. This is not a book for ascetics or pleasure deniers. Throughout this, this book, you, fo- you find these calls to Enjoy our portion. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And so, thank goodness, eat your chips and salsa, right? Enjoy your ice cream, amen? Right, Develop your hobbies and pursue entertainment and seek to be successful in your career. Experience love and friendship and romance and every good thing that God has provided, but do not try to derive ultimate satisfaction from them. They're fraught with limitation. And limitation marks everything in our experience. We're limited in time. And we are limited in our ability to understand why we're in the kind of time that we're in. And that's where he turns in chapter three. Look there. Verse one. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. And he goes on from there, and, and before this was a song by the birds, this was a Hebrew poem, uh, kind of rather the original. But the point is that life is, is, a, is a mixture of joys and sorrows. And sometimes we're, sometimes we're in a season that's marked by joy, and sometimes we're in a season that's marked by sorrow. Sometimes it, it feels like building up. And, and construction and, and new things are taking place. I mean, I just love watching you drive down the road and new buildings are going up and they're being constructed and they're getting assembled and you're kind of tracing along with it. There's, the, there's this sense that something's being done here. And then there are times in our lives that look like the wrecking ball has touched everything. And all that is left is broken down to rubble. And apparently, neither one of those is out of bounds. You know, I, I meet with people who describe for me a, a narrative of suffering. And, and for some of them, it's like they've just been in years of suffering and disappointment and hurt at the hands of others. Others. And and they say, I I, I don't get it. Why? Why has it been like this for so long? When when are things gonna turn to be happy? And many different people have sat in the same chair in my office and said the same thing, right? And and, and the Bible has a lot to say to us in our suffering and and we need to, to hear the variety of ways that it helps us. But Ecclesiastes adds its voice and it says, this is your time. And, and while your story is unique, it is not unusual. If you've read this book, it's not unusual. Our expectations need to be framed by this. Now, it's not always going to be this way. And this book helps us see that as well, we, we were made for something beyond this time. And consider this. You ever wonder why we have that experience of nostalgia? Right? You, know, you know that feeling, that, that sense of longing to, to somehow re-enter good times that have passed. Right? Even, even the best moments of life have come and they've gone and, and they, they haven't brought to us everything that we would have hoped to have gotten out of them. And it's like, if I could only go back there, if I could go back to kindergarten or if I, if I could go back to when my first kid was born, whatever it is, I just, I just want to taste again. There's joy there and, there, and there's something that has passed Because I feel like I haven't gotten everything that I would want to have out of that experience. Why is that? Well, because we were made for eternity. Look at verse 30. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. I mean, just think about this picture. Something that is boundless and infinite and, 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 and without restriction like eternity. And, and it's like God has collected that together and he's, he's shoved that within the small limits of the human heart. And there is something inside of you that aches for something that is large. Large. And beyond all the restrictions of where we live here. It says, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We are creatures of eternity living in a feudal time. And that puts limits on us as well, right here and now. It limits on our ability to understand why we go through what we do. As he, as he puts it, what God has done from beginning to to end, if, if we try to go to certain events to find an explanation in them, or if we try to go to the circumstances or the tragedies themselves, we will find nothing that helps us. No matter how many times you roll it over in your mind and think of it from different angles and try to think, okay, maybe this was going on or maybe, maybe that happened because of this, you can pick it apart until it drives you mad. But there is no amount of information that's available under the sun that will ultimately clarify things for you or rescue you. We have an ache for eternity in our hearts. For the day when everything becomes clear and everything gets resolved and and that's when we'll see how God made everything beautiful in its time. Even if today just looks like ugliness and absurdity and that day is coming. But there's something in God that we need to encounter by faith today that will sustain us till then. And before I take us to what I believe this book is leading us to encounter, I wanna just allow a moment for us to have the Spirit lead us to savor what we've seen so far. So if Eric, you'd come back up, man. We're not done yet, okay? Transitioning here, but there's some ministry that God wants to bring to us. There's a little bit of space in your notes on the back. There's not a lot. You're not having to write an essay right now. But I, I want you to take some time to think and consider with me. You know, in his book, Reading the Bible Supernaturally, John Piper points out how sometimes what we savor from our experience in God's Word has a bitter taste. And, and what he means by that is, is sometimes meaningfully interacting with scripture it it awakens in us emotions that are more complex than just excitement and happiness and that should be happening and that's our hope for you this summer. There are, there are times where you, you open up your Bible and you, and you take it into your life and there is just this overwhelming sense of joy and into, anticipation, awareness that God is good, that as Psalm 16 says, the lines of my life have fallen in pleasant places. I've got a beautiful inheritance. There's more than enough I've got here. And there are times that you savor these truths and at first they, they taste bitter. They bring up memories. They bring up realities in our experience in this world, in life that we live in today. You know, as I've spent time meditating in Ecclesiastes and a, a couple of weeks ago, I took a, a day to just spend in this in this book, honestly, it's been something of a strange experience. Um, but but the more I've been near to it, the more it's helped me. And I want to allow the Lord to unravel us a little bit here. In, this, in your assignment this week, you're going to be spending some time reading in Ecclesiastes and some of the other wisdom literature. If you, if you look at your little handout, that was in your, your bulletin uh, under the category of savoring, there's this description here, letting a passage read you. And and we need to have what we've heard this morning to read us. Let's be honest before God. This is a book of honesty. There is real wrestling that takes place here. And apparently, that's allowed. I mean, you just just look throughout the Psalms and and how these individuals are bringing their sorrows and their perplexing circumstances to God and they're saying, why in the world is this going on? I wanna allow you and your heart to honestly reckon with where are you right now? Where's your location? All right, so what kind of time do you live in? Is it a time that feels like fullness or emptiness or both? There are different dimensions. We're complex people. And so what's God helping you to see Just take a moment, you write that down. What kind of time are you in right now? and with that consider this where right now would you put the label futile maybe it's several things maybe there's one thing in particular that has captured your attention remember some of those other words that help us what feels unfulfilling unresponsive confusing, like it's stuck and refuses change, like it's meaningless. And what gets that label? I was praying for you guys last night and just asking the spirit to lead me to anything that may put specificity to this for some and thought of somebody in the medical world came to mind feels out of place something feels like you've made a mistake something else that came to mind is motherhood. Maybe motherhood doesn't feel fulfilling. There's aspects to it that are unwanted. Or maybe for you, you've sought to kind of create some sort of identity out of that, some sort of status as being the the competent, put-together mom. And it, it's not delivered that for you. You feel a little lost in your own home. All right, so those, those are just two, but you, you've got your own category. What feels futile? All right, and what kinds of expectations have you brought to life? You just be honest with God. Are they sufficiently informed by the fact that this is a fallen world, or do you have location amnesia? Are you facing disappointment because you've been trained by this culture for what you should anticipate to receive out of life? You're trying to look to the things under the sun for them to provide fulfillment or understanding. meaning alright you you answer in your heart before the Lord and write down whatever he brings to mind well this is a book that wants to do more than just help us Understand our experience. It wants to bring us to a place of awe in God. And that's where it lands. In chapter 12, verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, right? No matter what you're racing after and trying to achieve all of life, it can be defined as how are you in relation to God? And then he says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We need wisdom for life. We need wisdom to face what life confronts us with. In the beginning, wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And here, I I think fear means to be stunned with the ways of God. To be humbled by the, the limitations of our perspective and to trust him. To say, God, I'm gonna let you have all this figured out. Because for me, by my own wisdom and my own insight to try to wrap my mind around it, it is just striving after the wind. But notice he wants us to look into the future, to to this day that's going to come where God's going to bring everything into judgment. Everything's going to be put under review. Every secret thing's going to get disclosed. There is going to be, despite our inability to analyze and fix things here and now there is a divine assessment coming in that day for every fact of our existence every injustice, every time that we felt like I was, I was overlooked or I was wronged or what's the point why even do the right thing nobody notices, nobody cares it doesn't even feel like God cares when I obey him that's not the end. He says there's a day that's coming where, where God unfolds it all and he brings his commendation and he brings his reward and, and the weightiness of that day is going to swallow up all the vanity of today. All right, final passage for you, Romans eight, eighteen. Back your notes here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Right? That's the ache. For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God did that. God consigned all of this world to be one parade of vanity. He just made it all feel like a big bunch of nonsense. He poked holes in all the containers of this life so that we would not seek to drink ultimate satisfaction from them and he did so so that we wouldn't put our hope in any temporary fix I mean what a tragedy if we had everything we wanted under the sun and everything made sense to us here and now in the short short years we live on this earth and where we are most broken is never repaired and God said in his mercy I'm not going to let that happen So I'm going to tear into this world because I'm going to cause you in the frustration and the anxiety and the pain that exists to to wait with eager longing for something that's beyond this, for what God's going to do. And every vain thing on that day that we have walked through will be totally Worth it. The sufferings of this present time, he says, they're not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us, which makes everything that we labor under now totally meaningful. It's not meaningless. And we see this clearly in Christ. He took on the curse, He entered the futility of our existence. And if you look at the cross, there's nothing about that in and of itself that leads you to to conclude there's anything more than just chaos and absurdity. But it's a beauty. And through it, Christ is collecting together all the moments of our lives. Every time of suffering, Every time of disappointment and pain, and he grabs it, and it is not wasted. It is producing in us, it's, it's building up for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you believe that? Do you sense it in your soul? That's what God wants. That's what he wants you to encounter. He says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Even if it doesn't get resolved under the sun. There's coming a day when that son is going to be permanently put out of a job, and the light of Christ will blaze with clarity on all of our existence, and in that, that day we will be satisfied and we will be full. Let's stand together and let's just allow ourselves and our hearts to respond to God with hope and expectation. And joy Let's sing together. There is strength
1: within the sorrow, there is beauty in our tears, and you meet us in our mourning. in our waiting sanctifying us when beyond our understanding you're teaching us to trust your plan to still the prosper in the fire. could understand your ways, reigning high above the heavens, reaching down in endless grace, you're the lifter of the Lord. are my delight. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. For our good and for your glory, even in the valley you are faithful. Remember that you are in control. God, that the futile pursuits, the the difficulty that we see around us, the the tragedy, the trial, the joylessness, Lord, anything that we see with our natural eyes, Lord, help us to remember, God, that it is not the only thing that's happening right now. Lord, you have you have a plan that is being worked out. God, there's a greater purpose for us, and that purpose is to give you glory and to be satisfied in you alone. So, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust in your plan. Help us to live these days on this planet aware of your sovereignty, God. For your glory and for our good, O faithful God, we pray. It's in your name we pray. Amen.